All right, if you're looking for an address, we're heading to Romans chapter 1, verse 16. We're continuing our little mini-series from the last four or five weeks. And I'll tell you all about it and get you up to speed and then we'll launch into this morning. But before we do anything else, let's pray. Let's pray. Father, just thank you for a moment this morning already. We've celebrated your faithfulness to us. It's evident in so many different ways. Thank you for your presence. We thank you for the reality of your love. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your scriptures. What a gift they are to us, able to lead us, to guide us, to feed us, to sustain us. And I pray this morning, Lord, as we just dig deeper, as we wrestle, as we come with open hearts to receive your truth, that you would cause your word to come alive through the power of your spirit. As we pray so often, Lord, would we be receptive soil to the word that you proclaim to us? Would we be a people that bear fruit for the glory of your name, a great harvest? So do whatever you desire to do, we pray in Jesus' wonderful name. Amen. Romans 1.16, of course, most of us who have been around will know that we've been in this series that we've entitled, Not Ashamed of the Gospel. And we've tried to unpack that a little. We've had a few more preachy sessions, just looking at the importance of the message itself, talked about the nature of salvation. We've sort of dipped our toes into a little bit of theology. As I said, so often it's hard to dip your toes in without going for a swim. Well, this morning, in some ways, we're just going to jump right in and see what happens. Because I want to conclude this particular passage here. Let's read it together and then set the scene for where we're going to head today. Romans 1 verse 16. Paul, of course, as we've said a number of times, he writes to the Romans, a people that he'd not personally been to visit himself. And he says very clearly, I'm coming to preach and proclaim the gospel. That's my heart. That's my mission. That's what I love to do. It's it's the urgency that's just the fire in my belly is to preach the gospel. And then verse 16, he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. And we talked about that, what it is, why the message matters. He says, for it's the power of God unto salvation or for salvation, that that's the heart of the message, that Jesus came to save. To everyone who believes, and we've talked a little bit here about belief and justification and even tied in baptism and wasn't it wonderful for those who came along after church last Sunday to see a group of people baptized. Always a significant special moment and I pray that it'd be great to, to have the problem where we needed to do baptism services every Sunday, wouldn't it? Wouldn't that be great? Let's, let's aim towards that. And then of course that brings us to this last part of the passage, which perhaps at times we'd be more inclined to interpret this comma as a full stop. It's the power of God to all who believes, full stop, end of story, let's move on to the rest of the good stuff. And yet Paul has this little phrase, which if it was just one phrase, we might well go down that particular path. But he throws in there in his message of, not ashamed of the gospel, it's the power of God for salvation to everybody who believes, here it is, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. 
Now, why on earth did Paul put this particular phrase? I mean, it was good up to that point, and now we're all confused, wondering what on earth was Paul thinking and trying to get at. Now, there's really uh, two common views. One is simply that this is a reference from Paul to make it really clear that the gospel is for everyone. And it certainly is that in part. He makes it clear that the gospel is for everybody. It's for the Jew and it's for the Gentile. No longer is this a message that's proclaimed primarily to one ethnic group. This is for the all who believe. The gospel is for everybody. It's the good news that will be proclaimed as Jesus commissioned his disciples to the ends of the earth. So yes, it certainly is that. It's a covenant made with humanity not a people group. But there's more to this particular reference, most people would suggest, than purely that emphasis. And it's this. This reference here frames a perspective that is found throughout the rest of the book, namely this wrestling through, well, how does this message of salvation, this gospel that we've talked so much about for us over the last month, five weeks, that Paul will talk about through the rest of Romans that is right the way through, not only the New Testament, but the Old and New. How does this picture of God coming to save humanity, a people for his own possession, how does that work through this lens of Jew and Gentile? We've got the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. And I said this in one of the early weeks, it's probably one of those areas, I believe, that is most misunderstood theologically and to really get us there, we kind of need to dive in a little bit. So I said up front, this will be a little more teachy rather than preachy. If you're looking for those moments where you can jump up on your chairs and shout amen, you're welcome to do that. You're always free. You have my permission. But it's more a moment where we're going to have to engage a little bit and just kind of think this through. And I should say up front as well, a second disclaimer, there's a good chance that we'll probably come away with more questions than answers. Is that okay? Because I'm not pretending that I have all the answers. If ever you thought that, I'm sorry to disappoint you. But we are lifelong, I hope, students and journeyers in this truth and the wonder and the majesty of who God is as he unveils himself through Scripture. So Paul has this wrestle, and it's a wrestle actually that you see throughout the New Testament, but one that we don't wrestle with, I believe, enough. And Paul will go on, as I said, not only just to, to make reference in this passage, but three chapters in the book of Romans alone, as well as many other references, 9, 10, and 11, dealing primarily with this particular issue. How do we reconcile God's covenantal faithfulness in light of this new gift of salvation that's found through the Lord Jesus Christ? And let me set the scene a little bit this way. What do we feel? Obviously, we've made it clear that Paul's message is the gospel. He comes openly to proclaim the gospel to the Roman people to give him his A to Z of what the gospel is. What is for Paul, thinking through who Paul is, what is the primary question that he is trying to answer? What's, what's fundamentally undergirding his exposition of or explanation of the gospel. What is his primary question? 
Now, for those who come from, say, a, a Reformation, a Reformed, or a Lutheran background, which I think a lot of those threads still flow through our theology, you'd say very quickly, well, that answer is easy and it's straightforward. Here is Paul's message. It's simply this, the gospel is how we get saved. Now, certainly... Paul talks about that, doesn't he? We talked about that, the heart of justification. How can we be justified? We've dipped our toes in. As I said, we're plunging right headlong now into this reality of theology. So that, that is certainly and still is one very valid proposition that the heart of what Paul really wants to get across in his message of the, the gospel is how do people get saved? And certainly for Luther, and, and we talked about justification being the hinge, as Luther calls it, of all Christian faith and doctrine. And we could never underemphasize its importance. If we remove justification by faith alone, through Christ alone, then we have nothing. All we've got is vain works and the human effort that we can try and bring to the table. So it's central and it's important. But some would suggest that at times we've been guilty of reading Romans through the lens of a 16th century academic rather than a 1st century Jew who Paul was. Let me explain it this way. For Luther, there's no doubt in anyone's mind that the primary question that he was trying to answer was how do we get saved? He lived in an era in the 1500s where the church was basically offering salvation to the highest bidder. What are your sins? Well, here's the price you need to pay, indulgences. But that, that was the nature of the church environment that surrounded him. And he said, this, this is wrong. This is ridiculous. This is not what the Bible says. And of course, he launches into the book of Romans where he found so much life and truth and finds this reality of salvation, of justification that comes through faith, not through works, not through indulgences, not through money that is offered. So there's no doubt that as Luther came to the book of Romans, he came with that lens. His primary question was, how do we get saved? But my question to us is, was that Paul's fundamental question? And I should say up front that many would still say, yes, it was. That's what Paul was interested in. How, how do we get saved? But here's an alternate question to ask ourselves, because some people would suggest that actually the salvation question was easy for Paul to solve. He wasn't like Luther wrestling with how do we get solved? How do we get solved? How do we get saved? Salvation was easy in his mind, remembering that he was a Hebrew of the Hebrews. He grew up with this Levitical system that clearly defined sin as the thing that separates us from God in this environment where the Levitical blood sacrifices make a way. Yes, it was temporary for the sins that people commit. And then certainly he was knocked off his high horse and had no awareness or understanding that Jesus was the fulfillment of all that. But the moment that his eyes were opened to see who Jesus was, that that salvation question was easily answered. Okay, I see it, Jesus. He's the blood sacrifice. As John the Baptist says, a very Jewish title when Jesus begins his ministry, he says, Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. That's, that's who he is. That's what he came to do. The, the blood sacrifice provision. To the Jewish person, they're like, oh, well, I completely understand that. For most Gentiles, it would have had to be explained. Why is, what's a lamb? What's blood? What's all this about? Do you catch what I'm saying? So... 
Perhaps the salvation question was a lot easier for Paul than sometimes we give him credit. And his bigger question was not just how do we get saved, but how does salvation now relate to God's promise to Abraham and to the Jewish people in general? So do you see the distinction there? Because in the theological world, there's two huge camps. There's one who would say, no, the fundamental issue of Romans, the heart of theology of salvation is simply this, how do we get saved? The alternate question, and there's a whole stream, it's often called the new perspective on Paul or the new perspective on Pauline doctrine, is simply this. It's not just how do we get saved, but it's how does salvation work in the greater context of God's covenantal redemptive purposes? One's how do we get saved. The second is a lot broader. It's not just how, how do we get saved. It's how does salvation work in this tension between Jews and Gentiles, the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. And indeed, it wasn't just Paul who wrestled with this. Peter obviously wrestled with this question. You remember the encounter that he has? He's up on the roof having a little nap. He's had a long day. All he wants to do is sleep. And it says in that moment as he's lying there, he's caught up in a trance. He sees all these unclean animals. He's a good Jewish boy. And the Lord says, arise, kill and eat. He says, no, no, this is a test. The Lord is tempting me. Lord, I will never do that. I am faithful. I will not do that. And then again, the Lord says, arise, kill and eat. He's, he's wrestling through this whole thing. And of course, that particular vision or trance, whatever you like to call it, was the catalyst that God used to open the door to the Gentiles. Very clearly. So Peter wrestled through this and Acts 15, you see in that particular instance that all of the apostolic elders, all the big wigs of the church in that particular era and time, they gather together, Paul's there, Peter's there, James, you name it. They're all there in the room to discuss one primary theological issue. It's not when the Lord's going to return, wasn't what style of services are going to be most contemporary, what song should we sing, is it Hillsong or Bethel? It was none of those particular issues they came primarily to try and wrestle through how does this all work how does this work with the the gift of salvation in the midst of God's covenantal promises that are throughout scripture and I would suggest if you hear nothing else and I, I did promise you up front that I'd try and give you more questions than answers but I wonder whether we should as well be wrestling a little more with this specific question. I mean, it was there, it dominated the landscape. And maybe you say, well, it's 2,000 years later now, so we can just put that kind of theology. We've moved on. We're far more sophisticated. We've got it all down pat. We really know our scriptures a lot better than they do back then. And perhaps there's part of that that is the case. But I do think that as we wrestle through this one particular theological issue that we find a, an entirely different perspective, not only on how you read Romans and Paul's theology, but how you read the New Testament, and most importantly, how you understand God's redemptive covenantal purposes from the beginning in the garden through to the New Jerusalem, the eternal city, seeing this glorious thread of redemption, which I don't think we think through enough. So here's my mission this morning, and as I said, it's a little bit mission impossible, but we have in this series, we've celebrated the beating heart of reformed theological doctrine, never want us to lose it, want us to be 
informed and grab a hold of this justification by faith alone, through Christ alone, let's never move away from that truth and that reality. But if that's the hinge, then I want to ask us, well, what, what is the house upon which the hinge hangs? What's the door? How, how does that actually work in a broader narrative? Are we following along okay? I know it's a long weekend and you're probably thinking, I could be sitting on the beach somewhere, just soaking up some rays. And we're dealing into some murky waters of theology. But hang on there because genuinely I've found this a lens that has been so helpful in my understanding of Scripture, in my reading of the Old and New Testament, and just trying to piece together the way that God works throughout Scripture. And it's helped me. I'm prayerful that in the midst of all that we cover, it helps you as well. Is that okay? So point number one, I've tried to kind of summarize it into a couple of key ways that I believe if we can have this broader picture, not just focusing on the hinge, but, but getting a grasp of, of the bigger reality of God's redemptive purposes, it'll help us in three different ways. And number one is this, it unifies the soteriological storyline. So there is this unification that happens when we can kind of grab a hold of the big picture of this story of salvation from cover to cover. So let's just think that through a little bit. There's been this theological undercurrent, which you can really trace back as early as the church fathers in the first few centuries after the time of the Lord Jesus, that would suggest, and it's gained popularity to differing degrees at different times, but all with this this similar theme that the Jews after their rejection of the Messiah, become a rejected people, a people that the church has supplanted in God's economy of salvation. There's this picture of the old is gone, it's done away with, we're to have nothing to do with it, the new is now come. And we, we still see that, you might have heard the term replacement theology, it goes under a lot of guises, a lot of different names, with this same suggestion that somehow the church has replaced Israel. Now, I should mention that there are some theological streams as well that go the other extreme and say, well, no, actually, the real picture that God really wanted was for the church to, for for rather than church replacing Israel, for Israel to replace the church. And the church needs to get back to living under the law and following the Levitical rules and regulations. Now, neither of those pictures are correct or healthy. So there's that theological undercurrent, and then along comes the Reformation, and I think one of the often unintended consequences, as as great as Luther's theology was, we've talked about it, hopefully you're getting that vibe, I'm not anti-Luther and the Reformation here at all, but one of the unintended consequences that came through that particular doctrine and the theology that came out of that movement is as Paul talks about the works of the law, he's very anti-works, and that's been equated as Paul being anti the Jewish religion, often almost constructing Christianity as the antithesis of Judaism. Judaism is bad, it's all about the works of the law. So just in layman's terms, it's a little bit like, and I was in this place for some time, kind of thinking, well, all of that old stuff, all of the old covenant, all of the, you know, the Ten Commandments, all of the, the ritual, it's, that's all bad. That's all stuff to just be dealt with and brushed under the carpet. It's all 
gone, it's all done and dusted, the new has come, we're to live in the new. Anyone else kind of ever had at least that sort of vibe happening, ticking through your mind, this, this understanding that old is bad and new is good? And in essence, at times, the Old Testament and the Jewish religion was really purely set up by the Lord to fail. It was, if you like, the darkened backdrop. God sets his whole system up that it's all works-based, it's never going to work, and he does it all to paint this just dark, horrible picture against which all of a sudden we can have the beauty and the light of the gospel. Now that kind of works theologically, doesn't it, or, or logically. You can kind of see how we would develop this picture. We've, we've virtually got to rip the Bible apart, and one's the dark, evil yuckiness, and then one's the light and the goodness where we want to be. The problem is that it almost makes God into this, this double-minded creator, setting up one thing at one time and then another thing and doomed to fail, etc., etc. Now, all of this picture actually doesn't, it, it's not helped in terms of Lutheran theology by the fact that Martin Luther himself, if you look at his later works, and never mention this to a Lutheran if you still want to remain friends, but a lot of his later works were deeply anti-Semitic. They were. And you can see why people grab a hold of, of this theology, the undercurrents. We grab onto Luther's teaching. And what it does is it creates a, a dichotomy, this rigid breaking down the middle between Jews and Christians, between the Old and New Testaments. It's this, this unbroachable divide. Never these two shall meet. And in terms of the theological space, that really was the dominant view. One's dark and bad, one's good and light. For many years, until a little bit of theological history for you, the 1970s, a guy, an academic by the name of E.P. Sanders in 1977, he wrote this book entitled Paul and Palestinian Judaism, and he raised there something that he termed covenantal nomism. Now, don't worry about the term. The heart of that really, and this, this book became a catalyst in theological space and the understanding of New Testament theology and Paul's writing. And his suggestion was simply this, the heart of covenantal nomism was simply that for the Jews in God's intent, the works that God required them to do was always within the context of God's gracious covenant. That God never actually gave them the law or designed the law to be used as a way for them to work towards salvation. Now, it might not sound like much, but that particular reality and that truth, as I said, became a catalyst for theologians to really reinterpret how they had read Paul's writings. That this predominant view that came through Lutherism of the, the old covenant is bad, it's all works to this new picture of actually maybe there is some consistency and the majority of academic scholars would acknowledge to some degree these days that at least at the heart of the old covenant was God's intention not to bring the law in to give people a path to get to heaven that they'd always fail at, but it was an expression of his grace, that it was a covenant of grace, just just think that through because I want you to catch that. That at the heart of the old covenant was not this God who was setting something up 
just to set people up to fail, to work harder. He didn't set up the law and think, well, oh gosh, they're, they're really messing up now. We better come in with some provision of blood and the Levitical sacrificial system. That was always his intent, was a gracious covenant, was the law that revealed to a people their sinfulness so that they could appropriate the grace that he would provide. The provision was made up front. It was an afterthought. Oh, you've sinned again. Well, I better, better do something about fixing that up. That it was, in fact, at its essence, a covenant of grace. Now, nobody denies that when we hit the first century, the Jews of that particular era and time had taken the covenant of grace, as the church had done in, in Luther's time as well, and turned it into a covenant and a religious system of works to earn or achieve salvation. Deep breath, are we still awake, tracking along? Fantastic. So this work by E.P. Sanders, it really opened up this whole new perspective. It's called often the new perspective on Pauline theology. It's not so new anymore. It's been around since the 1970s. But this picture of a covenant people and a covenantal consistency and outworking of grace that stretches right back from the Abrahamic covenant all the way through to the new covenant and to God's ultimate fulfillment of his redemptive purposes. So in essence, what it's done is it's removed this definite divide, this dichotomy between old and new, and now we can view scripture with this continuation of God's redemptive purposes that's centered on Christ and they're fulfilled within his coming. Now grab your Bibles. I, I hesitated to turn to too many passages, but I want you to see this not just in me saying it, but in Paul's actual writing. So come first of all to Romans 15. I'm going to read from verse 8. And this really is where Paul concludes. So he covers a lot of, a lot of territory. He's talked, of course, the first three chapters that the Lutherans will say, that's the high point of the book of Romans. How do we get saved? Justification by faith. Whereas the new perspective would say that was just a warm-up. 9, 10, 11 is really what, he, what Paul wanted to get at. That's what he wanted to unpack, how Jews and Gentiles work together. And the other thing I should say is that in academic spheres, you're normally in one camp or the other, right? Either you're in this perspective or you're in that particular perspective, which is always a bit sad. I feel at times as I read these papers. Anyone see that, that old taco ad where they were promoting hard shells and soft shells? They're like, it's got to be hard shells, and the other one, it's got to be soft. It's the only way to eat a taco. This is the only way to eat a taco. And in the midst of that, and they're having it out, this little kid, he stands up, he's like, why don't we have both? And they're like, oh, the insight, the wisdom. I mean, as I said, I love so much of a Reformed theology. I find it this rigorous, academic, intellectual, you know, life-giving system more than anything else. But there's certain other areas, that I believe, that are really helpful for us to get some perspective on. So this is how Paul concludes. He's, he's talked about all these things. 9, 10, 11 talked about the nature of Israel. We'll pop back there in just a moment. This is his conclusion as he looked at the beginning. I've come to preach the gospel. In verse 8 of chapter 15, before he then goes to, to greet people, etc., etc. He says, For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised, to show God's truthfulness in order, and here's what I want you to catch, to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and not instead of or in any higher priority 
2, in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy as it is written. And he goes on, wonderful passage. All these passages from the Old Testament talking about the Gentiles, in him the Gentiles will hope, the Gentiles will praise your name. And may the God of hope fill you with joy, peace and believing so that you may abound in hope. Wonderful passage. What's the point? Paul, as he concludes this whole thing, he said, I've come to preach the gospel. He's unpacked how it works, justification by faith. He's looked at the nature of the church in Israel. He says, this is my summary of the gospel as it's proclaimed, that it serves two purposes. One is the salvation of the Gentiles. And by the Gentiles, we can read the whole world. The gospel's been proclaimed. It's open to everybody. But number two, that there's also a part of it, and this is what so often we forget, that Christ came to fulfill the promises given to the patriarchs. And there's no greater patriarch in Jewish faith than, than Abraham. Wasn't a trick question, that one. Than Abraham, the father of faith. So these, there's this two-fold tension as he proclaims the gospel. And to me, it's not either or. And we get into trouble when we make it either or. But... Where I think we see this, this beautiful illumination of a bigger satirological storyline, of the, the storyline of salvation throughout Scripture, is if we hold those intentions that really this is about the salvation, about people getting saved, the gospel going to the ends of the earth, but this is also about God's covenantal promises to Abraham, that we in the new covenant inherit the old. And vice versa. I'll talk about that because we always say it's not replacement theology, that we become a part of that particular work. All right, so that's how, how um, Paul concludes in the book of Romans. That's his summary that it's not either or, it's both and. And in that, and we'll talk about this a little bit more, there is therefore a unity of this salvation story. Number two, it then broadens the perspective of God's redemptive purposes through the proclamation of his covenantal faithfulness. I know that's a point in a title, but I couldn't get it any shorter. You see, what, what it does is it has this ability, whereas a, a Lutheran perspective, and this is wonderful in and of itself, says the heart of salvation is justification. That's, that's it, that we're made right. It's pers- the salvation of the individual. Uh, This alternate perspective comes in and says, actually, it's much bigger than that. It's not just the salvation. It is that, and it's centered on that. But the bigger picture is, and this is the term that's often used, it's the covenantal faithfulness of God. And that's what I want us to grab a hold of. The covenantal faith, that he is faithful to his covenants, old and new, and they're not separate. They're one flowing redemptive purpose from the garden, through Abraham, through the work of the Messiah, Christ on the cross, through to God's eternal promise and fulfillment of his plans. N.T. Wright, if you're looking for a theologian in this particular area who I've particularly enjoyed, I would recommend him to him, partly because he's good. Secondly, because most of his work he actually makes available for free. He's not in it for the money. It's like I've just got some things to share. You can go to his website and really get a lot of uh, resources that will help you in this particular area. And if you're like me, everything tastes better and it just sounds better if it's free, right? This is what Wright says. He says, Thus the gospel is not simply a message about humans get saved, 
but a proclamation of God's eternal plan fully culminating in the work of Christ, a plan that reaches all the way back to Yahweh's covenantal promise to Abraham. So that's what we talked about. Yeah, we're comfy there? Now, that particular reality, this broadening from just personal salvation to covenantal faithfulness, it flows all the way through. And we've touched on some of these particular theological issues as we've gone through, and I'll spare you the details now. But right from the righteousness of God through justification, through faith, there is this bigger picture. Rather than it just being about personal salvation, it's now about the covenantal faithfulness of God to people. So number three, I know that was a very quick two, but got to get through in our time. And I'll give you the title, might not make much sense up front, but I've found as I have read scriptures, as I've really, as I said, wrestled through this question that Paul, that Peter, that New Testament scholars do, that as you get a bit of a hold and a framework upon the story of salvation, I'll phrase it this way, point number three is this, it establishes an eschatological understanding, or you could say expectancy. What do I mean there? I simply mean there in in that particular title and in that particular part of the picture, that as we understand this, it really gives us an insight and a perspective in the way that God works through his covenants, through the old and new, and how that will unfold in the full schema of God's covenantal purposes. I want you to turn to Romans 11. And this is the last passage here that we'll go to. And we'll kind of try and get an understanding of what I mean by this, an eschatological framework, and then we'll, Lord willing, Try and just wrap it all up together. So Romans 11, Paul gives us here one of what I think is the most important and illuminating picture of how this all plays out, particularly as it concerns the church and Israel. And from chapter 11, verse 11, the the title in my particular Bible is the Gentiles grafted in. And that's really the picture that he's going to give us, that it's not one or the other. There is this picture of an olive tree with the Gentile, the roots of the the branches of the Gentiles grafted in. So just a couple of verses to pick up the gist. Chapter 11 of Romans, verse 11, he says this, So do I ask, did they, being the Jewish people, stumble in order that they might fall? Now that point there alone is important. He's saying, you know, the Jewish people have stumbled. They did reject the Messiah. But does it mean that they've fallen? Does it mean that they've been excommunicated from the promises of God? He says, surely no. No, by no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. Now, let's jump along to verse 17. If we had the time, we could unpack this whole thing. You can do that in your own time. Verse 17, he says, But if some of the branches were broken off, which has happened because of their unbelief, and the wild olive shoots, being the new Gentile believers, were grafted in amongst the others and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree... Do not be arrogant towards the branches, etc., etc. So he's giving us this picture here. He's, Paul's saying, I want you to understand how this works. This was God's plan that he's established, if you like, this, this tree or this root that through the unbelief of Israel, salvation has come to the Gentiles and the Gentiles are grafted into that very same root. Now, this image is important 
for two reasons. Firstly, because it neither collapses the church or Israel. Yeah, It leaves them as two separately unrelated entities, but still there is a definite and distinctive union of the two in this clearly identified outworking of God's sovereign purposes. They've got to work together. What good is branches without a root or a stump? They're going to be lying on the ground dead. What good is a stump without branches? It's of no use to anyone except maybe making a nice table or something as I like to do. So they've got to work together. But here's what is also interesting is that ingrafting of Gentiles is not the end of the story. Now come ahead with me one more passage. And I know I'm just sort of throwing it out there, opening up a bit of a can and leaving you to sort out the mess. But this is what he says. This is his conclusion of that picture in verse 25. And this is written to us because it's, it's written to the Gentile believers grafted back in. He's saying, I do not want you, verse 25, to be wise in your own sight. And I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel. And here's the key word. He says, until. So he doesn't say a hardening has come upon Israel forever. He's made that clear. That's, that's it. Israel is gone. They're done and dusted. He's saying, no, 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 no. There is a stump. There's a root. The branches are being grafted in, Jews and Gentiles together. But here's what I want you to know. He says that a hardening has come until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. So there's a full ingathering of Gentiles, but then that's not a full stop. That's not the end of the story. He says, and in this way, all Israel will then be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness for Jacob, and this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Now, this is one example of a theme that we see all the way through Romans. There's a professor from Wheaton College by the name of Scott Haferman, and he puts it this way in a particular paper that he writes. This is important for us to grab. Redemptive history does not become abstracted into the Christ event, but continues on after Christ's coming and establishment of the church just as concretely and historically as it did before. Here's the point. Not only does this kind of picture of the olive tree of the Gentiles grafted in give us kind of this picture that neither collapses but both are dependent upon each other, it also reveals this understanding that God is not finished with Israel yet, that there's a further stage to his plan of redemption and salvation. And we read about that as we concluded the book of Romans or Paul's explanation of the gospel in Romans 15. He says he's come back to save the Gentiles, but he's come back as well to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs. What are some of those promises? Well, the coming of Christ, if you remember, if you read in Luke one thirty-two, was that Jesus, the Messiah, would sit on the throne of his father David. Now, you could say, well, is that an allegorical throne? Is it a you know, that, that was a literal earthly throne that he would be set up as the Messiah, that he would rule the nations from the throne of David. If we had the time, and I would refer to this particular passage, this exact uh, program of, of God's redemption is found in Acts 15. I mentioned as they gathered together to discuss this tension between Jews and Gentiles. And it's James who gets up in the middle. He says, all the prophets agree that, first of all, God is going to gather himself a people from the nations. 
But then he'll return and rebuild the tabernacle of David. It's exactly the same conclusion in Acts 15. And and this is the point in all of that. I'm kind of giving you or trying in some way to give you the framework so you can grab a hold of this truth. So listen up and then we're bringing it to a conclusion. I think this is one of the, the greatest, most fascinating, most glorious ironies that you read in Scripture. That if you understand this ongoing tension between the Old and New Covenant, God's promises, the church, then the church becomes the present hope of Israel and specifically the fulfillment of Yahweh's covenantal promise to Abraham. We are. We're the fulfillment of that. But Israel become, or Israel's final restoration becomes the future eschological hope of the church in this panorama of redemption. I'm going to say that again. You got it? You caught it? You grab a hold of that reality and you've caught the essence of the major truth that holds together the redemptive purposes of God into a cohesive and glorious narrative. That the church becomes the present hope of God's promises to Abraham and that a restoration of Israel becomes the future eschatological hope of the church. Now, there's two things that I hope that we can take away from that particular truth. Number one is this genuine desire as believers to never lose grasp of what is, as Paul puts it, the root, the the stump, the tree that we are grafted into. If you want to use a term that is uncomfortable sometimes to our hearing is to never lose sight of our Jewishness, of the old covenant, of this picture of a God. It's not all works and evil. It's a faithful God of the law, of all that it reveals to us, of his prophetic utterance through feasts, through scriptures. Like we, we would do well to grab a hold of and investigate so much of the New Testament we don't understand because we don't fully grasp the Old Testament. There's all these pictures that you'll never get the full understanding of the Lamb of God who takes away the sin in the world. You would have no idea, if you just had the New Testament, no idea what that meant at all. It's only because... We've been taught in that particular instance what that means. This is the picture. It's the Passover. It's the deliverance of people from Egypt. Like there's a richness there as we grab a hold of our roots. And that we would have, so we'd have a desire as believers to grab a hold of our Jewishness, if you like, but that we would pray that Jews would come into their Christianness. I know it's not a word, but bear with me. But that's, you know, we we talk about we should pray for the peace of Jerusalem. And sometimes we think, well, that means peace in terms of wars, which it is. But peace, biblically speaking, is not just a ceasing of of wars. It's a coming into salvation. It's that we would see God, the end of your your redemptive purposes that flow out. And and you've prophetically prophesied that the gospel would go to the gospel. uh, The gospel would go to the world. That there'd be an ingathering of Gentiles but then eventually the natural roots would be grafted in as well, that would be all joined together in this glorious gospel, salvation, Jews and Gentiles standing together, united through the sacrifice of the blood of the Lamb. Does that make sense? Oh, I'm going to take a breath now. Can we get the worship team up? Do you want to stand with me? I want to pray for us, but really as we, you know, as we try to, to wrestle, and I warned you up front, this was, this was not a preachy, preachy, 
This was trying to genuinely wrestle through, maybe uh, asking more questions than answering. But what, what I hope as we have you know, talked about the gospel, that we would see the gospel, this message that matters, that we would see it as the hinge of all Christian faith and doctrine, but that we would also see it in the fullness of God's redemptive purposes that stretch all the way through, through Scripture from the promises of Abraham centered on the coming of the Messiah and leading us all to the new Jerusalem, to the glory of God. So let's pray together. Father, Lord, I just thank you that you can come and help and, and bring illumination where we need it. That you are a God who leads and directs us. And I pray that wherever we need illumination, even in terms of the different paths on which we've trod, trod this morning, that you'd show us the way that there might be even just a, you know, a few little areas in which you'd open our eyes, you'd just plant a, a deeper seed within us to see you in a fresh and a new light. Not just as the God who saves, but the God who is faithful. Interestingly, that we've had such a focus, Lord, on your faithfulness and that your faithfulness, not just to us personally, but you're faithful to those whom you've promised, the Abrahamic covenant, the new covenant, that you are a faithful God. And I pray that we'd see that faithfulness in a new light. Pray that you'd help, Lord, where, where we need to in any area of our lives, just break out of our little comfortable theological boxes, that sense in which we feel like we've got all the ducks lined up, Lord, I, I don't mind being in a place where there's more questions than answers because that's always a place where I'm most dependent on you. I pray that we would be a people who, who search your scriptures daily to see the truth of all that you've given to us. Stir our hearts afresh, I pray.